The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Exchanging Prep Insights, Clinical Expert and Patient Perspectives on How to Become a Trusted HIV Prevention Certified Provider. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XFA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to Exchanging Prep Insights. This is a clinical expert and patient perspective on how to become a trusted HIV prevention certified provider. So I'm Dr. David Wool. I'm at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And I'm really honored and excited to have two co-presenters with me today. And what we're going to do is be discussing more about PrEP so you can understand from different vantage points um, how we think about PrEP and an important tool, as we'll discuss, but with some limitations. So I'm going to introduce and and have them introduce themselves as well, um, Dr. Hyman Scott. So Hyman, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. Um, I'm Hyman Scott. I'm a, a physician, uh, infectious disease trained physician here in the San Francisco Department of Public Health and also an assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Wonderful. Thanks for being with us today. And Mr. Omar Martinez, I'm glad you're here too. Tell us about yourself. Yes. Uh, Omar Martinez. I'm an associate professor at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine also the director of the Implementation Science Research Lab, and most of my work and research is focused on addressing disparities in HIV among sexual and gender minority Latinx populations in the United States. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for being with us. I think this is going to be a lively discussion. So let me just start out by saying, you know, again, PrEP is an amazing tool, and it's something that I think we're all really glad exists and has a role. I think one thing that we can all settle on right now is that HIV is not gone. And, and while we've seen some changes in the epidemiology of HIV and in even some of the numbers of people being diagnosed, we still have room to go, right? So we know that more than 700,000 people in the United States have lost their lives to HIV. This continues to be the original pandemic. We're dealing with the COVID pandemic now, but this is the OG pandemic. And we've you know, an estimated 1.2 million people are living with HIV right now. In addition, we know that there's been progress with treatment as prevention and prevention using PrEP, but yet we know that continuing, we see people, tens of thousands of people every year being diagnosed with HIV infection and that there's huge disparities between who is getting diagnosed. And that's something I think we should delve into a little bit as well, where we're seeing men who have sex with men who are white uh, decrease in new infections. Interestingly enough, over the last 10 years or so, we've also seen decreases in women of color being uh, diagnosed with HIV. But yet when we look at men of color, especially men of color who have sex with men, we've seen the opposite, with dramatic increases. So I think we have to think about, well, how do we integrate PrEP and do we need PrEP? I think more, now more than ever, we need PrEP, but maybe PrEP that um, fits better. Who's at risk right now for getting infected? And I, I'd like just to get your perspectives. And maybe Omar, we, we see that there are these disparities in people who are getting infected or at least diagnosed with HIV right now. Um, PrEP is out there. What is PrEP missing? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that um, you clearly highlight um, some of those disparities. And, and looking at the latest um, CDC data, you saw an increase of new HIV diagnosis, a substantial increase of new HIV diagnosis among gay and bisexual 
um, Latinx men, and, and some others are calling this the invisible um, HIV epidemic. When I look at the challenges, right, I, I think about the social ecological framework and the social ecological model, and, and, and we need to be thinking about the upstream factors, right, and, and barriers um, to care. I'm thinking about discrimination, right, discrimination from providers, right, um, stigma as a key barrier to accessing care. You know, when we're thinking about injectable PrEP, right, and insurance is going to be a key barrier, right, and coverage is going to be a key barrier impacting uh, underserved population. Thinking about, uh, you know, inner cities such as Los Angeles, Miami, uh, Philadelphia, right, transportation, housing insecurity, food insecurity as key barriers, right, uh, not only to HIV prevention, to HIV care, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those structural barriers are key. Hyman, I think um, we're going to talk a lot about those barriers and, and maybe things that we can try to help in the short period of time we have that we can do to overcome some of them. We can't overcome them all without short of a revolution. But just understanding how we as providers can maybe mitigate some of those barriers to make them lower for folks so that they could benefit from PrEP when they need to. How do you think that the availability of PrEP, the kind of formulations we have, so on one hand we have the structural issues and then we have this biomedical, um, you know, sort of innovations and, and manipulations. Uh, you know, one pill a day doesn't work for everyone. Um, and, and so are there ways that you've seen developments in PrEP maybe try to address some of the challenges with getting people to get protected from HIV? Uh, absolutely. And I think to the what Dr. Martinez talked about, like if you are struggling with housing insecurity and don't have a home where you can keep your medications and have a place to store them, or if you're in a situation where you have, you know, disclosure that might happen and a sort of stigma associated with having HIV because you have your PrEP, then having pills with you is problematic. Having pills is for HIV prevention, which for many of our patients is not the number one need uh, that they have in their lives can also cause problems. So I think that there are new formulations like the injectable PrEP, which can sort of address some of those concerns where somebody doesn't have to have a pill with them, that if it's difficult to take a pill every day, um, we're seeing this sort of revolution in treatment as well. Um, and I, I do think it's sort of a U-shape. There are people for whom this is going to really work well on sort of both ends of what we sort of describe as adherence spectrum, um, but it's not going to be for everyone at every point. Um, and so it's great that we're going to have options. And we've seen this with uh, contraception, right? right? We've seen that um, giving people options has increased the reach of contraception. But we've also seen that, you know, uh, persistence or staying on any form of contraception similar to staying on any form of PrEP changes and somebody's life circumstances might change. And I really think that it's important for providers to be aware and engage in those things. Like, you know, we as providers, like we're not going to end racism as that's driving many of the things that are happening with our patients, but we can help mitigate some of the negative effects of that for our individual patients in ways that is beneficial to their lives. And I think that that's an missed opportunity that we have as providers um, to, to sort of advocate for our patients who might have more needs um, that we can work with them. Leveraging these tools, these are biomedical tools. They are to help people, you know, with their HIV prevention goals. They're not going to fix everything, but they can be a great tool for us to use to advance HIV prevention, which is what I think we all have as a shared goal. I think one thing we can also talk about is how do you navigate 
that. And I think one thing I'm going to ask Hyman about is um, I see in, in my clinic sometimes that there are folks who I think are good candidates for PrEP, and I'd like you to highlight who you think is a good candidate for PrEP, um, but they sometimes don't appreciate their own risk. So I think what, what Omar said was great. We've got to get PrEP and messages about PrEP outside of clinic walls. And, and by using TikTok, by using community health workers, by messaging, by going into the community, we can make prep awareness, you know, much, we, can, we can dial that up. But then I do have people who, even when they're aware that prep exists, don't think it's for them. So can you share some of your thoughts and, and experiences and how we can help people uh, maybe, uh, you know, understand why prep might be a good idea for them? Um, I, I think it comes down really to the language. I think we really, um, and I take risk out of my discussion. You know, this right. isn't about, this isn't about high risk and your risk for acquiring HIV. That's not how people think about, you know, the things that might put them at risk to use that word, uh, for HIV. It's, you know, it's about right. sex for that, for a lot of people is right about pleasure and connection and sort of making that linkage about, you know, this is something that you can use to protect your sexual health. It has nothing to do with risk. It has everything to do about all the things and all the reasons that we as uh, individuals have sex and, and make connections with people and sort of using that language um, because people who don't see themselves at risk are then not going to be interested in this medication that you're saying is for people who have high risk. One, two, um, it undermines our ability to reach individuals because then that perpetuates through the community that, oh, this is for high risk. So if you're on it, then you're at high risk. So I think take home messages that folks could um, really apply is that really we should look at everyone who comes through our clinic doors as a potential candidate for PrEP. And the only way we're going to know more about that is by talking to them about this and making sure people know. I can't tell you how many, time I've been, how many times I've been in a taxi where I get to talking to the driver and, you know, eventually it comes up. I do it all the time. And like, did you know there's a pill that you could take to prevent HIV? And they don't know it. And so there's such a knowledge gap, certainly among people coming into our clinics as well, where I think that we should be really thoughtful about taking a good sexual history. Sexual health is part of our general health. Hopefully everyone listening to this has already understood that and has come up with strategies that work for them for talking to every single person about their sexual health. Um, people have no problem telling us about their erectile dysfunction. They're not going to have any problem talking to us about sort of their concerns about contracting um, you know, COVID. Um, so let's talk about sex. <laughs> and so sex is great to talk about and we can try to make it better for everyone because it's a part of everyone's life. So I like what you said. I, I enjoy talking to people sort of about their sexual health and sexual lives, but you don't actually need that much information to know if somebody right. is a PrEP candidate. And so generally what I do is I say, you know, are you sexually active? And are there times that you don't use a condom? And like, that's all I really need to know. And I, I inquire about gender partners and types of sex and those kinds of things. But like, that's really all you need to know. Um, and right. so I think we do have to be inclusive of individuals and providers who might not necessarily be at a point where they're ready um, to, to have an extensive, nuanced, non-traumatizing conversation about sex with their partners or with their patients and their partners. Um, and you also don't need to go that deep all the time. Um, and that's okay as well, as long as we use the, what we have to support people accessing the prevention options. That was so hyped up in that conversation and, and what you brought out 
the importance of being sex positive. And, 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 and if you look at our data, it keeps coming on and on and on, right? Uh, a key determinant of that great interaction, successful interaction with the clinician, um, when you talk about HIV prevention and care, is that about that sex positive communication that happens um, in, within that clinical encounter, right? That is strength-based messaging that happened with the clinician, right? How to have hot, fun, and safe sex, right? And, and it's all about that and moving away from this risk um, frameworks. So I, I also want to mention like the G word, guidelines, you know, because guidelines are really interesting in our world. One thing is, is HIV, the field of HIV, is so fortunate to have guidelines. In, in fields of medicine where there are no guidelines, it's the Wild West. So we take it somewhat for granted that we have guidelines that help us about treatment. And now we even have some updated guidance regarding PrEP that I think is, you know, it's fairly user-friendly. It's easy to understand. It's not dense. It's not 400 pages. But there are guidelines, and there's sometimes controversy about this. And, and Dr. Scott, I'd like your opinion about the newer iteration of guidelines and a little bit about what they're telling us vis-a-vis um, oral options versus injectable and some of the things that are being recommended around both and just what your impressions have been um, with these newer guidance that came through from you know the department of health and human services and from cdc yeah so i'm glad you mentioned that because i I do think there has been some controversy around some of the regimens that are sort of mentioned but not necessarily recommended in the guidelines focusing primarily on on demand so there are oral regimens that are daily uh, TDF FTC or daily uh, uh, TAF FTC. And then there's uh, options for on-demand. We sort of refer locally as 211, two tablets, two to 24 hours before, and then one tablet um, you know, each day for two days afterwards. Um, and then there's injectable. Um, so they have a variety of uh, sort of approvals, I, I would say, or recommendations. So... Uh, Oral TDF and FTC are approved by the Food and Drug Administration, as is cabotegravir or um, injectable, long-acting cabotegravir. And um, they have different populations for whom they are approved. So I'll sort of mention the ones that they're not approved for. I think oral TDF FTC has got probably the most broad approval, except for individuals who have pre-existing renal disease or sort of uh, reduced creatinine clearance less than 60 for uh, TAF FTC, it's approved for individuals um, except who have receptive vaginal sex, um, and it has not been studied in people who um, inject drugs and have that as an HIV risk. Uh, long-acting CAB um, LA is actually approved across the spectrum of ri- uh, risk groups, uh, except it has not been studied in people who inject drugs as their risk. Um, and then on-demand or 211 um, has uh, not been rec- approved by the FDA, but it has been recommended by um, the IAUSA as well as the WHO for uh, men who have sex with men, primarily um, who have exposure through anal sex. Um, so there's a variety of regimens that have sort of a potpourri of uh, recommendations and approvals. Um, and, you know, my approach to the guidelines is, you know, what are the data that supported using um, or recommending those? Um, is that data strong enough for us to feel comfortable making that recommendation to our patients based on our understandings of, of what types of um, risk of acquisition that they might have, what types of sex that they're having, um, and sort of have that as a shared decision-making 
um, beyond just what the guidelines say. So, you know, I think that, for example, on demand, uh, PrEP 211, really, um, there were trans women who were involved in the studies, but it's really been focused on men or sex with men. But I feel comfortable, you know, if a trans woman is having receptive anal sex, that, you know, 211 would be an option for her if that was what she desired. Um, so I think that the guidelines give us a guide, um, but it really is going to be up to us to uh, to either interpret that information in, co- in collaboration with our patients as we're deciding sort of what um, what we would be able to offer. Right. And I think that's really important to point out that um, we're now so deep into PrEP that there are really good studies that help us understand um, the advantages and disadvantages of all four of the different strategies that you've talked about. That allows us to you know, better evaluate. It's not only just the data that are available, but do the data apply in, for the individual sitting in front of me looking for guidance? And I, I like what you said about really trying to look at the different populations and different people. Um, and, and there are some options that are not, that we don't know, that haven't been studied in those groups or that we know are concerning. Um, so women, cis women who are pregnant, people who are pregnant, we, you know, injectable cabotegravir, we don't have the kind of data that I would feel comfortable recommending that, where we have much better data regarding some of the oral regimens. Um, so I think that's really key that not one size fits all, but also not all the four different options fit everyone. Um, and I think that's going to be key. One thing that came up for me with the newer guidance also, there's been a little bit more stringent recommendations about monitoring and lab testing, including getting a viral load. And talk about a structural barrier. Um, the cost of a viral load now for either oral you know, prep or for injectable prep is now being added to these guidance. I don't know if you've had any experience with pushback regarding that or, or people um, sharing their concerns about now adding on a viral load to the monitoring that we were doing, even for oral prep. Has that come up for you at all in your clinic? And, yeah. and that's so important to have that conversation because right. I think that that comes up later when somebody gets a bill and then right. suddenly you maybe turn them off to prep completely. Um, and providers are extremely, uh, do a terrible job at taking cost into consideration. And I think that that's an excellent point that can't, shouldn't be lost in sort of the choice, the decision about what somebody takes. Cost is going to be part of that. And that's going to be on the burden of the, of the patient. Right. And we should be clear, um, and this is, this is key, there's the cost of the medication, but there's also the cost that we sometimes don't anticipate, which is the bill for the laboratories. Uh, and, and like Dr. Scott said, I've gotten much more comfortable saying to people, here's your prescription, here's multiple refills, get your testing done at the local health department, which hopefully would be free, and just text me, you know, that you did it, you know, and, and then we could continue to work, you know, on getting you more refills as time goes on. Um, with the new guidance about viral load, there could be this new cost. And sometimes I don't know what it's going to cost yeah. and they don't know until they get the bill. So I think I have to be honest with you, and I, I'm not saying this is what I'm advocating, but we sometimes don't always get that viral load, especially in people who are on TDF or TAF, um, because I don't think there's as much of an issue of, of there being a delay in diagnosis of HIV that we saw perhaps in, in the injectable cabotegravir. So again, the point here being guidelines are guidance. Um, they're not scripture. 
Uh, and so I sometimes use a little bit of flexibility in some of my patients in applying those guidance. So, you know, I sit in the health department. I do think that there's a role, I think, as Dr. Wall mentioned, for the health department to really play a central role in this, even if it's viral load. I, I do think at some point we're probably going to need to move past antibody testing for HIV as the only as the primary way we diagnose it, particularly if we ever develop a vaccine that's efficacious for HIV. Um, and that there are strategies that health departments can use to support that, like pooled viral loads. Um, so there are some laboratory advancements, I think, that can support this and reduce the cost. Um, but it should not be passed on the patients regardless. I agree. And I think that the bottom line that I think people is know, know your landscape, you know, know who your partners are, know who your allies are. There's great health departments out there. Some charge for some tests, some don't. Um, know what you're doing and, and then share that with your patients. Um, that's your obligation um, because we could be advocates too. Um, and I think we advocate strongly for many, many of, in many of our clinics for our patients. And I try to be as creative as possible um, to make sure that people do not get a bill. <laughs> there should never be a bill that precludes you from getting what you need, um, even within our healthcare system. And HIV is somewhat special, as we mentioned, for treatment. And more and more, we've got to make that happen for prevention. So thank you for going over that. Those are really important points for our providers to know about as well. But you know what? The sadness is pretty much anywhere where PrEP has been used in the world, uptake has been suboptimal and persistence has been abysmal. So yet we have a biomedical innovation, even in places and in people who don't face all the structural barriers you're talking about, even among people who have insurance where we see it doesn't last. So for me, it's just almost as much of a failure as a success story. So I think we need a combination of things, right? We need better options for people. One pill a day doesn't fit everyone's lifestyle, right? Not everyone has thoughtful people they can talk to who help them understand how important it is maybe to protect themselves or that there is the possibility that they could become infected. So I think the formulations will help, the messaging will help, but you know, I think there's still something missing and I, I'm not exactly sure what it is because it is universal. Whether you talk about girls and women, whether you talk about men or sex with men, no matter who you talk about, there's not, even when people start it, they don't stay on it as long as they probably should. So that tells you there's something inherent that we have to work on, I think, to really strengthen and, and, and emphasize over time. Well, I also think, though, that, um, you know, it's not easy to stay on it. Like, you know, the patients who I have, you know, if you lose your insurance, how many hurdles are you willing to jump through? So I think, you know, I use the example of Amazon. Amazon makes it really easy for me to buy stuff on my way to work. And so I'm on my phone and I'm like buying stuff and it's delivered yeah. by like 10 o'clock by the time I'm, you know, by the time I'm done with dinner, like the stuff I bought in the morning is there. Like we need to make it easier for people. And I think that some of those things that we sort of see is like, oh, it's just a biomedical. I think as Dr. Martinez mentioned, are, are actually they're layered with all this other crap that people have to go through in order to get it. And having insurance problems and pharmacy problems and a provider who might not think you need it and um, won't right. do the refill. Like, so there's all these, there's all these issues. So I think it's as much of a failure of our systems as it is of a desire for individuals to stay on it. My patients who seroconvert after being on PrEP you know, it's a very common story. Like this is this more similar story than it was that they didn't want to be on it, was that they had all these problems, their insurance changed, they lost their job. 
um, you know, that's yeah. why they, they ended up not being on prep. And, and I want to uh, provide an example, right, of a processes. So, so in a lot of campaign to promote PrEP, um, and this has actually come from our study participants and a backlash to that, you see the hot, shirtless, black and brown men promoting PrEP, right? But our participants come to our table, community advisory boards, and say, let's actually stop the hypersexualization of black and brown men in research and a promotion of a biomedical prevention tool, right? So, so, so it goes back to the process of ethical issues, right? About processes that, that contribute to that trauma and goes back to the history of being treated and seen as a guinea pig, right? Or as a sexual object, right? And, and let's humanize the way we promote PrEP, right? The way we promote care among our black and brown folks, right? So we don't repeat the same issues that we have in the past as, as clinicians, as researchers. Um, so that's what uh, the point that I, that I was trying to, to bring on. And, 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 and I think we have um, shared meaning there. So I think both of you are bringing up some really good points about really making prep available to people, giving people choices, not making assumptions, um, even though, again, and I think this is the double edge of this discussion, we looked at those epidemiological data and, and, you know, I do see that there's disparities and sometimes I'll be honest with folks and I'll mention those disparities in HIV diagnoses as I'm talking about PrEP. Um, and I think that helps people also understand that, you know, a lot of white guys are taking this <laughs> and a lot of folks who are brown and black are not taking this. And there's a concern here that we need to get more people not to catch HIV in certain communities and certain groups and certain populations. And that sometimes resonates with people. And, and I think that's another way that we can leverage some of that messaging. I, I, and I, you know, I agree. And I also think that I think to Dr. Martinez's point, even just acknowledging that, you know, a lot of why this is, is historic. And even if you don't get deep into the weeds about it, acknowledging and, you know, that you recognize that it's not just about prep, but it's also about opportunities and economic independence and all these other housing and redlining, all that stuff is just a helpful place to start so that you are on the same page with your, your patients. Um, and then the other thing that I also sort of try to explain is that, you know, it's not just individual behavior, right? Like it's about viral suppression by access of care, um, by access of medications within communities. Um, there's a variety of things that are outside of your individual, who you're actually engaging with sex in, what the network is like. And so it's like, how do you protect yourself in that context? And people are more attuned to this now with like the idea of herd immunity and that the people around you uh, are protected that helps protect you with COVID. So I sort of use that example as well, um, because a lot of the reasons why we have these disparities is because of that sort of ring of protection that sort of a call prep by proxy, where your partner's on prep and their partner's on prep. So the chances of HIV making it through that network is much lower. Yeah, no, that's really, really important. I, I think that's a very good, you know, again, COVID-19 has changed so many different things, but I do think that there's analogies there that we sometimes use in our clinic now that we didn't have before that people, they hear that and they, they everyone's become sort of an armchair epidemiologist and virologist and vaccinologist. Um, we don't have a vaccine for HIV. And that's one of the things we talk about a lot. We don't have a vaccine, 
but we do have medication that prevents people from getting infected. And we want everyone who could benefit from that to know about it and then make an informed choice about whether or not this is for them. And if it is for them, for how long it is for them. Um, because we talk about how sometimes you don't need to stay on it, as you mentioned, Dr. Scott. So I think that's really important that people understand that. So other things that you think that providers who are listening here, remember, these are the hand raisers. They get it. They know that, you know, there's a lot of challenges out there. So I'm going to ask each of you to summarize, like, what do you think would be the message for the, for the provider that's saying, I want to do a better job. I want to be an advocate for getting people on to PrEP who could benefit from it. So I'm going to start with you, Omar. So what, what do you think you would want to tell these providers in addition to kind of what we've talked about that may help them as they move forward to be, you know, a certified PrEP provider? Yeah. Um, so I feel like one of the points that, that, that was clearly uh, discussed here is that being a sex positive providers, right? And, and creating a space in your clinic uh, for folks to be free to talk about their sexual health, right? And how to have hot, fun, and safe sex, right? Um, and, 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 and reflecting on your question, right? And, and when I think about those champion clinicians, they work hand in hand with community health workers, with promotores, right? They have an ongoing communications with folks already in the field, right? Working with participants and have an ear and have an eye open and have an open communications with that frontline staff, right? That is working with um, the patients that you serve, right? So creating spaces to, to network, communicate, work with um, uh, community health workers, social workers. Um, other strategies, right? Um, you see these social media influencers, clinicians, right? And, and it's out there creating a social media space for their followers, um, their patients, right? Um, so that's another tool. I know that some of you uh, may not be into social media, right? Um, and, and that's okay. Uh, but I'm just highlighting some of the things that I have seen that worked um, um, and on the clinician friends and colleagues um, that I have. And those are some of the threes um, 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 that come to mind. Yeah, Dr. Scott, how about for you, for Hyman, what would you say to these hand-raising would-be champions? Yeah, so the way I think about it is sort of like, what is your individual sphere of influence and like, how can you support prep rollout based on where you feel comfortable, what lane you feel comfortable in? And so it's like, how do you make it easier for your patients to get access? Don't, you know, limit the number of refills, like little things like that. Put in standing orders. Use the people who are part of your team to help you. Um, you know, and from my perspective, from prep, depending on who you have on your team, like I say, a 25-year-old who's on prep, like, they don't need to see me. Like, they can talk to the coordinator. They can talk to the social worker. Like, there's nothing real medical I'm going to talk to them about. I'll answer their clinical questions. They should do their HIV and STI testing. But, like, let them be and give them the support that they need for adherence and addressing some of these social and developmental things depending on their age that they might need. Um, but like, let's not make this more complicated than it actually is and is actually quite simple. Um, and uh, depending on which regimen we are using, make the systems that our patients are accessing it in and that for which you might have influence easier and simpler for them to navigate to help them stay on it so that it becomes 
not a chore, but something that they actually enjoy coming in and getting their refills or talking to the social worker or talking to the coordinator. Um, because every system is going to be slightly different and is going to have different levers um, for making things better or making things worse. Um, but yeah, just, just sort of make it, make it easy um, for, for patients and then it'll make it easier for you as a provider as well. Yeah, I like that very much. I think really for me, it's very similar to what both of you have said. I also try to be as transparent as possible and say, look, there may be speed bumps along the way. We have an imperfect healthcare system for sure. And that when those happen, you know, don't get frustrated. So I also try to really make sure that we could have open lines of communication. Um, you need a refill, pharmacy ran out of the prescription, whatever. I want to make sure that we make this as easy as possible and navigate obstacles together. Um, you, you lost your housing, you're couch surfing. Let's figure out a way that we cannot have your prep interrupted. And also, I do think that the biomedical stuff has been somewhat exciting because it gives us something also to talk about, right? Did you know that there is an injection? Because some people may say, I don't want to take a pill. Um, but did you know there's an injection? Or, you know, people may say, I don't want to be on an injection. I want to be on a pill. So it gives me another opportunity to talk about things with people about PrEP. And, and people also more and more are coming into the clinic asking us about it, which is great too. So I think buzz is really important. Transparency, communication, really, I think everything that you guys both shared with us today, I think could be integrated into a package, a suite um, that we can provide to people as they come into our clinic. So thank you for sharing your insights. Hopefully people can take some of these and apply them at home. And then next time, come on and share their experiences with us. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Health HIV. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XFA860. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Vive Healthcare. Vive Healthcare was not involved in the development of content or selection of faculty for this educational activity.